The Doomer Bloomer Podcast is a community for the resurrection of good ideas. We profile the hero's journey in weekly episodes and teach people about the 10 pillars framework for success in life, business, and relationships. Our mission is to find and help all Doomer Bloomers with mental health issues, poverty mindset, lack of resources, and those left behind in this world. Tune in weekly with Will S. and occasionally John Wynn as we have deep conversations with guests about the hero's journey, clown world order, and the resurrection of good ideas. To help support our community, go to www.thedoomerbloomerpodcast.com support to become a member today. And remember, we are the cure for COVID-19. I talk. Well, yeah, you had to click continue. Yeah, welcome back to the Doomer Bloomer podcast uh, with Will S. Uh, we're talking about the hero's journey, uh, the 10 pillars framework for success, success, life, and business and relationships, uh, specifically health, wealth, and wisdom. Uh, we search out interesting guests on their own hero's journey, uh, talk about the projects that they're working on, how they're contributing back to society. Um, today on the podcast, I have Christopher Earnshaw, uh, PhD, uh, all the way from Tokyo, Japan. How are you doing this evening? Or I guess it'd be morning there for you, Chris? Yes, it's early morning here and I'm very well, thank you. All right, excellent, Chris. Uh, so before we get started, um, what uh, what prompted you to to reach out to the the Doomer Bloomers and and you know where where are you on your hero's journey so to speak right now? That's a very <laughs> complicated question. Um, I was interested in your podcast because of your your interest in, in the Tao and Taoism, and I'm also uh, very interested in Taoism. I studied it many years, and um, so I saw a connection there and so I sent you an email. Um, my hero's journey, yes. Well, <clears throat> I'm uh, probably um, coming towards the twilight of, of my, <laughs> my career. And uh, I retired several years ago. And um, I'm not quite sure if there's much of a journey left, <laughs> but um, I'm always in, um, discovering new things and uh, always trying to learn something that will either benefit me or other people. So that's in, in a nutshell where I am. Excellent. Um, so you are, while well, you're, you're, a, you're a, self, a self-published author, um, tell me a little bit about how you, you got started uh, writing. Because you weren't always a writer, right? Correct. Um, I've written about a dozen books, um, and uh, three of them are in Japanese. Uh, I, from a young age, I went to step back a bit. I went to a boarding school from the age of uh, five until eighteen, and um, in those years, uh, 
in my age, we didn't have television at school and there was nothing to entertain yourself except books. So I read everything. And um, there's a series of paperback books in England called Penguin. And uh, at the back of the book, they introduce other books. So I just read one book and then looked at the end of the book and <laughs> bought the next one that they were offering. And it, I didn't have any plan of what to read. And um, <clears throat> I, I think I spent two years reading nearly all the, the Russian classics from uh, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Lomontov, uh, you name it, I, I've been there. <laughs> and it was only because they kept introducing the, another Russian book at the back of, of the, each book I read. So having read so many things, after a while, you feel that you've got a book in yourself. You know, there's something you want to contribute because you, you connect so many bits of information and they seem to be, uh, ah, I come up with an idea, but it's not in anybody else's book. So perhaps I should write my own book. And that's how it came around. Um, the first book I wrote was on Japanese calligraphy. Um, I, when I came to Japan, I studied university here. And uh, one of the courses I took was calligraphy. Well, I thought it was like learning how to write, you know, I didn't think it was an art form per se, but just learning your ABCs. And um, afterwards, at, that was at the beginning. And um, after I passed several exams and became a kind of master uh, calligrapher, uh, I decided, well, no other foreigner has written about calligraphy, Japanese calligraphy. So uh, I I contacted a publisher and I published a book. And that's how it all started. I think that was 1982, yes. Before my time, as they like to say. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is, yes. Um, so, uh, so you're originally from the United States. Uh, says here you came to Japan in, when you were 20 and you basically have stayed there. <laughs> yes. And you've had a, a very varied, varied working career, it sounds like to me. It says you worked in pharmaceuticals, banking, right. Um, right. short period as a, as a chef, as I understand. Uh, not as a chef, but I did study at the Cordon Bleu School of Cooking, yes. Okay. Yeah. I cook at home a lot and yes, <laughs> I enjoy that. Actually, I'm from the UK. I'm from London. And uh, as you say, I came here in 74. And I, I originally had a place at uh, Cambridge University in England to study Japanese. And however, I didn't really feel that I had the uh, academic strength to complete a degree. In England, uh, because it's a, well, at that time, it was a free education. Uh, including university, uh, the authorities were very strict. And if you didn't pass your, your year, year end exams, they just throw you out. So there's a lot of pressure on everybody to complete a three year degree. And um, I thought I wouldn't make it. So I decided to come to Japan for one year, what we call a gap year. It's a gap between high school and university. 
and uh, to study Japanese and to be that much ahead of everybody else in the class when I got there. But I thought, well, you know, why study Japanese in England when you can do it in Japan? So I stayed here and never went back. Yes, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I got a life sentence without any chance of reprise. So you're basically been an expat for most of your adult life. That's kind of cool. Yes. So it's, it's interesting. It's challenging um, because the cultures, in many ways, the cultures are similar because this is an island nation and England's an island nation. And so historically, we have very similar traits, uh, kind of like independence and uh, the Japanese uh, talk about the purity of their culture. Um, however, there are a lot of negative aspects, you know, prejudice and this sort of thing, which uh, I face on a daily basis. I, I know how to handle it now, but in the beginning, it was frustrating. Do people still call you Gaijin over there? <laughs> yes, they do. Yes. And um, the rude ones I just not ignore nowadays. Um, uh, I don't need their help. Yeah, I definitely can, can see that. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit more about what you've been working on, I guess, in the past year. I know you released a book back in November as the conclusion to your series on Freemasonry. Correct. And uh, you said you're the one of the first people, well, the first person to make a connection to, between Freemasonry and Taoism. And I would love to yeah. hear more about your thoughts on right. that. Right, right. So um, firstly, I'd just like to say, you know, I'm not a spokesman for Freemasonry. I'm just an enthusiast. So these are my personal opinions. Um, I've been a Mason now for nearly 38 years. I'm a 33rd degree Freemason, and that's kind of the end of the road where we, you know, us in our system. Um, I joined uh, Freemason, my family are all Freemasons, uh, all on the male side, that is. And um, they never talked to me about it at home, but uh, I joined in Japan when I had an opportunity. And uh, so at university, um, in England at uh, London University, the School of Oriental and Africa, African Studies, I studied um, Chinese and Japanese, uh, particularly the literate, uh, literature side. So for Chinese, I studied Confucius and Mencius. And uh, about, let's see, 2016, so five years ago, I met a Taoist teacher in Tokyo and um, we got talking about many things and found out that in Taiwan they have um, once a year a temple has a kind of initiation ceremony for, for Taoists and um, he invited me to attend and I was on the plane two weeks later. Um, and when I went through the initiation for Taoism, uh, uh, I realized automatically that it was exactly the same as the first degree in Freemasonry. Uh, the elements, it was obviously very Chinese and they were wearing Chinese clothes and the words were different, but the main elements were all there and I was so surprised. And um, 
came back and did some research and uh, I found more and more Chinese elements to Freemasonry and it became a you know <laughs> I got really a little bit excited about this so I wrote the first book which um, is called uh, Freemasonry Initiation by Light and then um, I can the research just kept on going and going and I completed the story with the second book Freemasonry uh, Royal Arch and um, that's how it started really it was kind of serendipitous So those those are your four. Do you like, want to know your, more? Like that's your Freemasonry series. Those four books. So the four books are in a series uh, called Spiritual Freemasonry. My belief. I mean, I'm not sure what people understand about Freemasonry now. Freemasonry is an international charity, trees, and um, uh, as a charity. Our objective is to help other people. So we give away about $4 million every day to various charities. Um, the, the ritual of Freemasonry is about teaching a moral story. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a kind of shared experience. And um, uh, <clears throat> so we have these... Um, we call it a, a peculiar system of morality uh, and it's veiled in allegory which is in, in a story that is and illustrated by symbols and so Freemasonry is rather like a theatre uh, where people sit in a circle and the theatre is uh, going on in front of you and we teach people this um, peculiar system of morality. We have three tenets and four virtues of uh, brotherly love, relief, and truth. Well, in Taoism, they have something very similar. Um, the, they have the four Chinese four cardinal virtues um, as taught by Mencius and um, Confucius. And so some, there was a very similar um, background to Freemasonry and Taoism. Uh, uh, so when I went to look at deeper into the history I found that uh, in England, uh, Chinese things were very popular at the end of the 16th century and all through the 17th century. And um, it started in 1660 with the uh, uh, British uh, East India Company uh, bringing uh, tea from China to England. At that time, uh, coffee had just become popular because we would, um, uh, due to um, British or English interest, Britain didn't exist at the time. It was still England that Britain came in later. But um, England's uh, interests in commerce in the Caribbean, we were importing uh, coffee and also from Africa. And uh, so coffee was very popular, but suddenly there was this craze for tea. And with the tea, we didn't have the cups to drink it. We only had uh, pottery mugs. And so they, uh, the East India Company started bringing uh, Chinaware, uh, very high quality China from China to England. 
and um, they actually redesigned the cups and they put a handle on it uh, because in China they don't have handles on their teacups. And so if you look at a teacup and take the handle off, many of the teacups that we use nowadays are actually based on a Chinese uh, design. Uh, the ships used to um, do a, a triangular trade going from England to India. And then from India, they would take opium to China. This is a, a, became a big issue, of course, and it became the opium wars of uh, 1830s. But um, uh, so the ships had to be full all the time. You couldn't sail an empty ship. So they would take uh, something, I forget what it was. I think it's um, uh, pig iron, I think, was taken from England to India, then opium to China. And the ships would use this, the teacups and plates and things, they use it as ballast for the ships. Otherwise, the ships wouldn't, wouldn't uh, sail upright. And so more and more things were coming from China. So after we had tea and chinaware, then silk came in and foodstuffs came in. Things like um, ginseng uh, came from China. And so uh, more and more the, the trade expanded. And starting in about the 70s, so Freemasonry started in 1717. And at the same time, I'm um, uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry, a bit earlier than this, uh, the late 16, say 1680s, um, the Jesuits who were missionaries in China, they started translating the Chinese classics uh, for the, the Confucius Analects and um, Mencius, uh, also the I Ching, Tao Te Ching, they translated all these books into Latin and they published them in Paris where they were based. England was a Protestant country so Catholic Jesuits were not very welcome but the books became were imported from Paris into London and they became very popular. Then following this um, there were people who actually visited China with these, um, either with the Jesuits or with some trade mission. And uh, they started bringing back Chinese designs. And so in that time, uh, the early 1700s, 1720s, there was a design called Xinwazri. It's, um, there was a design uh, Louis XIV called Rococo, and it was a kind of delicate furniture um, with uh, flowers painted or carved into the wood and the cabinets and the tables all as a matching set. <clears throat> then 1720 in came the chinoiserie, which was uh, in introducing the Chinese motifs into these patterns on the, on the furniture. So, for example, they would have uh, exotic Chinese gardens, uh, they would have dragons, they would have um, uh, unique flowers that didn't exist in Europe, uh, just totally, um, which was kind of exciting to the, to the people living in Europe. They'd never seen anything like it before, and it became extremely popular. And then from there, it actually uh, influenced um, house designs and gardens. So the 
the way things work in Europe at that time was whatever the king did, um, then the courtiers would copy. They would, you know, they wanted to be fashionable. And if the courtiers did it, then all the aristocrats also copied. And it didn't really trickle down to the man in the street. I don't think he was too interested in Chinese uh, silkware and clothes and tea and things like that. But the rich people who had a lot of money to spare, they would design um, Chinese elements into their houses to be seen as being kind of fashionable. And um, so uh, like at the entrance to their house, they would have dragons uh, designed on, on the gates of their house or uh, the interior, they would have Chinese wallpaper. It was handmade in those days, hand drawn. Uh, they would have all this Chinese type of furniture. Um, of course, they would serve tea, to, <laughs> Chinese tea. And uh, so there was a, uh, even there's a, 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 um, a painting of Isaac Newton wearing a Chinese silk uh, gown, uh, which is not so well known. Um, yeah, so all these Chinese things came into China. So you got the, you got the Chinese foods, you got the clothes, you've got the house designs. Um, the first, um, so the way uh, Freemasonry developed in England, three gentry who are it, in England we have a fairly structured uh, social system, and we have. Um, uh, the nobility and the royalty, and the nobility is, is uh, I think there's six or seven different classes of nobility. Um, uh, it starts at the top, top with the dukes, uh, do, um, then it was marquis, uh, marchioness, uh, earls, <laughs> viscounts, um, mm, Barons and uh, yes, that's right. Barons, the lowest. We have lords, which are just titles. Uh, many people who are baron are called lord. Then we have spiritual lords and then feudal lords. <laughs> it's a little bit crazy. And so gentry are the people um, who are basically the professional people and they don't have titles. So there will be doctors and professors and, and lawyers and people like that. So three of the gentry started um, or restarted Freemasonry in 1717. And following them, they wanted to have an aristocrat or a noble uh, person, no, noble to actually run the organization. And so for the next 30 years, we had a lot of dukes and earls who were the grand master of the organization. And then uh, in about, uh, the date eludes me, but I think it's um, 17, uh, let's see, 1780 or so, um, the uh, Prince of Wales, uh, George, uh, the Prince of Wales became grand master. And that was a big deal because that, <clears throat> He was royalty. He was son of King George III. And in uh, 1820, he became King George IV himself. But when he was Prince of Wales, uh, he was really spoiled by his father and given a lot of money and uh, whatever. And um, he designed uh, a Chinese 
two, two buildings. One is Carlton House in England. Inside it has a lot of Chinese um, designs. And then he built a pavilion for himself in the south of England called uh, Brighton Pavilion. And um, Brighton Pavilion is actually a, an Indian, a Gothic Indian design. It looks rather like the Taj Mahal, but um, five, not as large as the Taj Mahal, but five times as many onion domes and things like that. But inside there are a lot of Chinese motifs and uh, the windows, stained windows with Chinese designs, Chinese wallpaper. So, you know, this whole Chinese thing was a real issue in the 1700s and I wasn't aware of this until I studied it. And so um, when, then when I looked at the ritual of Freemasonry, there are so many things uh, similar. For example, Freemasons ha have three senior officers uh, it's the master of the lodge and senior and junior wardens. Well, so does Taoism. They have uh, in the Taoist temple, they have three um, uh, commanders, they're called. And the senior one is called the light transmitting officer. Uh, that's a kind of direct translation from Chinese. And uh, so um, the another thing that struck me about this was that uh, Freemasonry is not a religion and neither is Taoism. People misunderstand that. I think Taoism is more like a, a way of life. Um, it's they worship their ancestors, but um, it isn't. Actually, I should step back a, a little bit because there are actually three types of Taoism. Uh, there's Tao Jiao, Tao Jia and uh, Minjian Tao, I think it is. So the first two, uh, Dao Jia, is the philosophical uh, Taoism. And the Dao Jiao is the religious. Uh, and they're into all sorts of things like invocations and uh, ritual magic. And um, oh, you think, whatever you could think of, they do it. <laughs> but the Dao Jia, which I joined, is the philosophical one. And they revere. Um, Confucius and Taoism and the Tao, Tao Te Ching, and that's what they study and they teach people. And so the, the, Tao, uh, the Taoism that I know, the uh, philosophical Taoism, they initiate with light. <laughs> and the only other organization to do that is the Freemasons, because uh, other organizations, including religions, they normally use fire or water uh, in the initiation. But there are only, only Freemasons and Tao, Taoists use light. And that to me was a key point, I think. Um, yes. So is, does that help? Uh, it gives me, well, it gives, it, would, it gives kind of an overview. You're kind of, it's, I mean, we're talking about, I would say, some, well, not, not complicated, but long histories. On, on, on either either side right because yes. for myself like um i'm fairly new to fairly new to taoism in 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 in, in a in a traditional sense i'm more of a self-taught taoist than okay. you know go seek out a taoist master and but it sounds like it sounds like you've spent some time with people who have been in the both the, phys the philosophical and the like practicing um taoism 
and then like to me and i don't want to come across as like uh an ignorant person but i always thought freemasonry was a secret society and it doesn't sound like that's yeah. the case anymore um yes so that's the image forgive me have. if i'm so, wrong no, no, on that point no no it's 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 a, a valid point so when freemasonry started in 1717 uh, England was in a very difficult position because it was a Protestant nation. But we had, um, in the, the previous 100 years, six, from 1603, we had had Catholic kings running a Protestant nation. So there was a lot of friction there and included uh, many attempts to kill the king, like the gunpowder plot and other Throgmorton plot and all the other the plots that, that went on. Uh, so in the 1717s, uh, when we uh, after King William and Mary, Mary the Third and King William the uh, Third, who set up all these, this college and university in America, um, then we had uh, George the First, who came from Germany to be King of England, <laughs> but he was a Protestant, so he was a good guy. So the issue had been that England was in this uh, in a circle around us were Catholic nations in the north. You had Scotland had previously been Catholic. It still had a lot of Catholic uh, Highlanders and lords uh, and bishops, but mainly at that time it was Presbyterian. But uh, Ireland was Catholic. So was France and Spain. And uh, King Louis XIV wanted to bring England back into the Catholic fold and there were many uh, sort of attempts uh, with the old pretender and then the young pretender. This is uh, the pretenders to the throne of England. So you may have heard of somebody called Bo Bonnie Prince Charlie. He's the young pretender. Uh, he was supported at, at different times by the Spanish and French to actually to try and uh, take the throne of England by force to reintroduce Catholicism. So for the Freemasons, <clears throat> uh, some of the issues we had was um, security. We didn't want people to burst into our meetings and um, try and uh, disrupt us or even to know who our members were. So um, we have a person on the outside of the, the meetings called a Tyler and uh, he holds a sword and the idea is that he, anyone tries to burst into the meeting uh, we hold him off and who who's the likely candidates well the people who may try to get in were the Jacobites these are supporters of the uh, of King James uh, the, the Catholic King James um, they had had uh, several uprisings in England. The last was 1745. Um, that's um, 25 years after the beginning of Freemasonry. They were still trying to take the throne. And so apart from the Jacobites, there was the In Spanish Inquisition. Uh, you may have seen in Monty Python, the Spanish Inquisition. Um, once you've seen that, you never forget. But um, yeah, they had spies all over. Yeah. They have spies all over England and um, they also tried to get into the meetings. And so we tried to keep the, us where we were meeting as a secret. 
and we had secret um, words and signs and, and handshakes and things so that only um, bona fide members could get in to stop other people to get in. That's the origin of the secret society. And it may seem strange, but in Japan, uh, the Japanese love conspiracy theories and they still think that Freemasons are trying to, is a Jewish organization trying to overthrow the world. And, and they, they write these articles in America. And we had somebody try to break into one of our meetings um, only about a year ago, a Japanese person broke into the lodge and tried to force his way in, but he was stopped by the Tyler. So, um, you know, it's, we're not really a secret organization. Um, we have obviously some secrets, otherwise, you know, why would people become members? <laughs> That's what they want to know, you know, our teaching. But um, it's, it's like anybody, you have a bank account and you just don't tell people what your bank balance is or, you know, this private information and these sort of, that's how we see secrecy ourselves. It's, it's just to do with us. It's nothing, nothing to do with anybody else, you know? So um, it's, <clears throat> but there's a second level to this as well. So the meeting and who we are and what we do, that's up to us, it's private, private business. But actually the teachings themselves do have secrets in them and um, kind of hidden teaching. And that's what I've been writing about in my spiritual Freemasonry series. <clears throat> because the, the Taoists were, um, uh, <clears throat> they started, well, they, there are records going back to 200 BC of this initiation that they were giving. And it's been continued all the way, probably, uh, with without very little, with with uh, you know, two thousand two hundred years, Freemasons had adopted this t secret teaching or this initiation. Uh, so that's why my book is called Initiation by Light, because that's what they were doing. But there is a second part to it, uh, which was probably what we would now term as secret, is that the the Taoists were familiar with out of body experiences. And they write about it in both the Tao Te Ching and the I Ching. Um, you just have to be familiar with the way they phrase things because it just seems to be um, a little bit unfamiliar to us, uh, the, the way they phrase it. There was a book written, I think, well, we know it was published in 16, uh, 1600s. Um, it was written by uh, Lu Dongbing, and it's called The Secret of the Golden Flower. Uh, it's been translated uh, into English now, and it's got an introduction by Carl Jung. And it teaches of a Chinese method of out-of-body experience. And I believe the Chinese have known about this for thousands of years. But in England, we didn't know anything about it because we were so Bible-oriented Christians. Um, we would never, we would have seen this as being the work of the devil or witchcraft or something like this. But to the Chinese, they, they uh, conversely saw this as a very high spiritual attainment to be able to achieve this. And the way it's explained in the uh, secret of the golden flower is very complicated and takes many years to achieve. Um, 
we now know by uh, reading, for example, I'm now looking at my bookshelf here, but um, Robert Munro, um, Robert Peterson, uh, people like um, uh, William Bullman, and these writers who write about the modern way of out-of-body experience and how it is the, the highest level of spiritual experience. And I think this is the secret that's actually hidden in our ritual, but nobody, uh, free, modern Freemasons uh, do not uh, see that. They don't, they're not looking for it, so they don't see it. But secondly, it's not obvious. Uh, it's very subtly hidden in the ritual. So um, yes, that's where we are. <laughs> so I, I guess I wanna ask is, um, what originally tr attracted you to becoming uh, a Freemason, right? Um, I guess besides it was a family connection. Um, and then how, how do you be, how, how are you a practicing Freemason in a foreign country? I, I guess there's chapters, is that, is, that, is that correct? Yeah, so we have lodges. And am, I, so, am I hitting the mark? Yeah, um, no, we, we have, so the thing about Freemasonry is that firstly, as I mentioned earlier, it's an international organization, but there is no one top person. There's no guiding light or authority at the top. So each country has its own organization. Uh, we all maintain the same rules. The ritual is nearly exactly the same everywhere you go. <clears throat> and that's one of the interesting things is how this organization expanded and developed. Of course, um, for example, the American War of Independence, when the British were fighting in um, the Eastern States, <clears throat> sorry, um, we took Freemasonry with us. And so we, we set up lodges um, in uh, the Eastern States. And one of the oldest uh, Grand Lodges in the world. Well, the oldest is the Grand Lodge of England, and then the Grand Lodge of Scotland, and then the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts is the third oldest, and then Grand Lodge of Ireland. And so, um, the uh, the the way it grew was this way. So so also going the other way. Later in the 1800s, with Victoria and the imperial growth of um, Imperial England into uh, India and other countries, we took masonry with us and then masonry has a very long history uh, in India and uh, northern African states uh, all around the world really, Indonesia, uh, Singapore, it's just everywhere uh, and uh, so this way of, I don't know if colonization is, <laughs> is, uh, is PC any longer but um, basically we took Freemasonry with with us. And so in Japan, we had um, traders coming from, uh, from England and all around the world, including the Netherlands, trading with um, Japan, and they set up lodges. Um, so our official lodge wasn't uh, established here until I believe 19, in the 1950s. And so um, before that, we didn't have a grand lodge, we just had uh, the 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 uh, 
the the daughters we call them daughters but the, the mother and the daughter so the daughters uh, the lodges <clears throat> and so we had the lodges we just didn't have the organization to control it until the, the 50s um so each lodge <clears throat> basically a lodge is a group of people it's not a building as such <clears throat> um people think of it as a building because that's what the word means but we can meet anywhere so uh, if you have five or seven or more, you can start a, a lodge if you if you get authority from from you just don't start, you know, you have to have authority from the Grand Lodge. But once you've received that, you can start and you can meet in restaurants. In the old days, they used to meet in pubs. And um, this is one of the hints. It's a bit of a tangent, but this is one of the hints that led me to believe that there was more to Freemasonry than meets the eye because in the early days in the 1720s um, lodges were held in pubs so pubs normally had spare rooms above the pub for meetings and eating and, and uh, like having uh, I don't know um, a wedding celebration or something like that have empty rooms so the the masons would rent this room above a, and then they would have their meetings well, we have records of some of the early meetings and um, uh, I'm looking at my book here to get, get the exact date, but uh, the, the early meetings, I think it was 1724, and um, we had uh, some really important people turning up to the meetings. So, for example, um, we had uh, dukes and earls, uh, the future king of uh, Germany, Leopold I, and um, then we had the uh, what's it, Secretary of State for Scotland, uh, the Vice Admiral, and other people of this stature were meeting in a pub to discuss something. Well, it wasn't morality. And though now we talk about Freemasonry as being a peculiar system of morality, but I doubt that a Duke would go to a pub to be given a lecture on morality. I think that he would feel that that is insulting. He was already a moral person as far as he was concerned. Morality is something the church teaches. And in England at that time, uh, by law, everybody had to go to church on a Sunday. That's the way otherwise you would be fined. And that was from the nobility to the most humble person in, in the field. Everybody had to go to church. That's where they learned their morality. I don't see a duke and the, form, uh, the future king of Germany going to a pub to learn about morality. There was something extra and it was this alchemy that um, <clears throat> Chinese alchemy is what I refer to as uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual alchemy of how to, uh, well, first of all, you have to awaken this, the, um, the spirit, and that's what the light's for. You bring the light from the universe to the individual to awaken his soul to a, a more spiritual way of thinking. And we have three degrees. The Chinese don't have three degrees. They only have, the Tao only has the first degree but we have three degrees and they show how to develop this, uh, this spiritual energy, which is very similar to the Chinese Qi and the Qi energy is circulated in the body. 
but the difference with the qi is that um, in Taoism, uh, in the, the teachings of the golden flower, this qi energy uh, actually leaves the body as a, um, <clears throat> a like a doppelganger and is able to, uh, to roam, visit anywhere. The spiritual plane, uh, the terrestrial plane, meaning earth, and it can go forward and back in time. It is really a very unique situation. And this takes a lot of training, but it is possible. And uh, many people have written about it, including one of my heroes, uh, William Bullman. <clears throat> uh, so um, I think that is what they were going to learn about. I think that would have been very exciting. The other thing is, is that um, the Royal Society had been established in 1660. And people were now thinking in terms of um, physics and chemistry as being unique uh, studies or disciplines. So geology and things like this. Previously, there hadn't been. It was just um, general study, what they, they termed as uh, uh, natural philosophy. It was just studying anything all mixed up. But 1660, it was actually took more than uh, probably 10, 15 years, but they started setting up the Royal Academy of, this, of um, Chemistry and the Academy of um, whatever, <laughs> physics, uh, the Academy of Geology. And so people became, from that time on, they became uh, more specialized in, in their academic studies. And this is the time when alchemy, as we knew it, started to die. So before the Royal Society, um, alchemy was one of the major forms of, of scientific uh, study. And many people believe that it was a study, uh, alchemy was uh, a search for the way to turn base metal, which is lead, into gold. Well, <clears throat> it was that, but it was also other things as well. And different people studied, used alchemical technology to, to uh, create different things. So, for example, um, monks, like the Benedictine, Benedictine monks, they used alchemy, alchemy to make a herbal mixture, like a, uh, a tonic, and it's called Benedictine, and you can actually buy it in the shops now, it's quite popular. Um, so, it's a kind of tonic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, people were using, so, the, the techniques of, um, of uh, alchemy for fermentation, they were making it for cosmetics, for medicines, uh, they were taking herbal medicines and trying to make them less bitter and easier to swallow. They were taking that bitterness out. This was all using those uh, seven techniques of, of uh, dissolution, calcination, and evaporation, and all the other things that the al alchemists did. So, but there was a kind of, of um, gray area between the death of alchemy and the beginning of modern science. And this is exactly when the Freemasons established the 1717s. And one of the leading lights was Sir Isaac Newton. He was a uh, dyed-in-the-wool alchemist. Uh, most historians don't know about uh, Isaac Newton's studies of alchemy. Uh, it was only uh, like 200 years after his death, which is like 50 years ago, 
that they found his papers um, hidden in some library at a university and they were all alchemical. <laughs> they were to do with uh, calculations and things. And it's known that Isaac Newton had um, alche uh, alchemical ovens built into in his garden for doing experimentation and things. And after his death, uh, his hair was an analyzed and they were found to be very heavy um, concentration of mercury in his hair. And uh, so it's, it's felt that mercury was one of the reasons that um, he died, was one of the contributing factors. But what is interesting to me is that the, I mentioned that there were three gentry, three gentlemen that started Freemasonry. They were all friends of Isaac Newton in one way or another. Isaac Newton was the director of the Royal Mint, uh, responsible for printing money. <clears throat> well, actually, they didn't, they coined it in those days. They didn't have paper money, they used just coins. And, um, but uh, in the same building, was uh, George Payne. Uh, he was the, di uh, the director of the treasury. And so they were in the same building. They would have known each other because London at that time was such a small place. It's 500,000 people in the whole of London. And so in a government office, unlike now when, you know, governments have ballooned, you know, <laughs> they've got so many people in government nowadays. In the 1700s, they probably only had 30 or 40 people running the treasury. You didn't need any more, you know. And so that's interesting, one point. The second point that Newton was the president of the Royal Society and his secretary was the second grandmaster, um, John de Sagulier. And so, uh, and the third grandmaster, the gentry, his, his name is Anthony Sayer. Uh, is suspected to have been uh, an alchemist. And as Newton was an alchemist, it's possible that they knew each other. I don't think these things are coincidences. I think this is part of a story, a story of the death of alchemy, the beginning of science. And Freemasons had stumbled upon a Chinese system of alchemy where we could not change lead into gold, but we could change our spirit, we could, um, uh, we could strengthen our spirit, we could um, uh, that was it, exercise our spirit and, or soul, no, it would be spirit. It's, it's the terminology is a little bit difficult, but uh, we would able to, our spirit to leave our body. And um, why this would be, and there's a second point about this is at the time in England, there was a, um, uh, what should I call it? Mm, a, uh, mm, I, I called it a cause célèbre, which is means a country. But there was, uh, m there were many people who claimed that the soul did not exist. Well, it's difficult because in the Bible there is very little uh, said about the um, quality of the soul or what happens when the soul dies. It's just not in the Bible. And so the Catholic Church, or uh, sorry, uh, the Protestant Church in England didn't have an answer for this. So people were writing all sorts of things and um, the government didn't know how to handle this. Um, so at one point, even in the Houses of Parliament, um, one author's book was debated upon and um, 
it was found to be blasphemous because he said the soul was a heathen invention. And so um, the books were burned by the public hangman. And because they put the books in a bonfire and people came around, it actually made the books more popular and he sold even more books. Um, people like, you know, uh, anything to do with suspicion or <clears throat> anyway. So, so we had all these things coming together at one point. We had uh, a, uh, people who didn't understand about the reality of immortality. Well, if you could succeed at the Chinese Taoist technique of the soul spirit leaving the body and then coming back, well, there would be no better way to prove that we are immortal, that the spirit never dies. And so this coming together with the interest in Chinese things, the Chinese philosophy coming into England, um, the alchemical, um, the hunt for the, the, um, uh, <clears throat> the secret to alchemy was coming to an end. The Freemasons probably saw themselves as um, writing a ritual or a play which would show the individual a way in a, in a graphic form of how to succeed to have the body leaves the, the sorry, leave, the spirit leaves the, the body in an out-of-body experience. They didn't write it down, they made a play of it. And that's what's really interesting to me. <clears throat> William? <laughs> So when you say they made a play of it, like they made like a stage production? Yeah. Yes. They made a stage yeah. production play or? No, they made a stage production. Okay. So this is based um, on a, a so... long history in England. We had um, a guild system which started in about the 1100s. The guild system is uh, there to, for, to organize um, uh, education for a certain subject. So, for example, uh, people who are going to be leather workers, there is a leather workers guild and they join the guild as an apprentice. They would serve a seven year apprenticeship. At the end, they would um, they would make a beautiful piece of leather, whatever it like, probably a saddle or something, probably a saddle. And they make it really beautifully to show how good their skill is. This is what we call a masterpiece because they would then be called a master leather worker. And so once the masterpiece has been completed, the guild would keep the masterpiece in the, in the guild hall. And um, so then the person from his apprenticeship uh, would now be able to charge people to uh, and sell his wares. Before that, he wasn't able to do that as an apprentice. Freemasons also have apprenticeships. And we called entered apprentice. It's our first degree. You're an entered apprentice. So um, the guild system is important because they have a, a patron saint. Uh, this is fairly classic because when the guild system started, uh, England was still a Catholic country until uh, 1534, King Henry VIII and the dissolution of the monasteries, etc. So until the 1500s, 400 years, the guilds were all Catholic. And they used to put on plays. 
every year in um, after the uh, um, uh, what's it called? I'm forgetting. I'm, I don't normally think in English. So I'm normally thinking in Japanese. Um, harvest festival. Yes. So after the harvest had been brought in, uh, people could have take time off and relax because winter's about to come. Just after the harvest festival, the the guilds would then put on a would have a party to celebrate and uh, to also to celebrate their patron saint. They would go to a church. And they started by putting on small plays and they were kind of educational plays. And you had three types of these plays. Um, there was a, uh, I forget the name, there was a miracle play, there was a mystery play, and there was a third play and the name escapes me. But these were either stories in the round, which means it's, not a stage and people sitting and watching the stage, but they sit in a circle around the players, so theatre in the round. And they would put on stories of either the, the lives of the saints or stories about virtue. And after a while, uh, these plays um, changed and they, they got larger and they started touring. And um, after sometimes they would all get together, the people who like the uh, the guild of the Fletchers. Fletchers are people who put feathers on on arrows. That's all they do. It doesn't sound very complicated, but they put arrow, feathers on arrows, but I'm sure there's a technique to it. So you've got the Fletchers and the Coopers, people who make barrel, barrels. They all got together and put on massive plays that would go on for like a week or even longer. And sometimes there would be, um, different sections of the play. There may be 40 or 50 different parts to the play. And um, uh, they would tour, they go all around. So they was, the play was so large, it couldn't be inside uh, a church any longer. They'd have to use the, the village green. And then um, because the people, hundreds of hundreds of people collecting in one place, then you'd have people coming to sell things, selling beer, selling fruit, selling pastries, and it became a carnival. And it was the beginning of our carnival uh, in England. And so this history of having a play uh, around a, a guild with entered apprentices has a history of 600 years before the Freemasons started. So when they proposed this idea, nobody thought it strange. It was quite natural. It's, uh, um, it was just an extension of what had been happening for so long. It's just, um, uh, it was now, the, it wasn't a working class um, uh, entertainment. It was the gentry, uh, the educated, and then the nobility and the aristocracy were involved. And that's where the, the change is. That's the, the major change in, um, of Freemasonry from the guilds. And now, in fact, the guilds still exist in England. We call them livery companies. And we have, uh, I think, 110 in England, uh, the weavers. And we also have a, um, a livery company called the Masons. Uh, <clears throat> and if you go to the website, it says at the top, we are not Freemasons. <laughs> it was masonry. It was actually building churches and doing the stonework. Uh, and making statues for churches, and that's what they still do today. <coughs> so yes, it's a play. 
yeah that's that's how that's how i traditionally yeah that's how i I, I traditionally associate freemasonry as like brick brick and cathedral and you know more like an architecture right right Right. so Um, is that is that a a component of of freemasonry is 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 architecture yes so um since uh since england started um I think probably 800s, probably from then onwards, we were building in brick. We were building monasteries and abbeys and things like that. And we had masons. Um, But these are what we call operative masons, the people who work with their hands and build buildings. And in 1717, uh, the Freemasons, who we we now term speculative because we we build with our minds not with our hands and that's the major difference we're not working class people we're not blue collar laborers mostly um freemasons are professionals and so we're we're trying to build something very different from what the operative masons did but we use the same terminology of the operative masons for example we use um what we call working tools. Uh, our tools are uh, hammers, chisels, trowels, square and compass, of course, and um, a measure, uh, like a, a um, measuring tape, measuring uh, ruler, scale. And uh, so we use the same terminology, but the yeah. objective is very different from the original operative masons. And of course, many Americans have, you know, the, uh, in the early days. I have a question for you. Do oh. you. Do you meditate? Uh, me personally, sometimes. Is that a I practice do. that you partake in? Uh, no, Freemasons don't. I mean, that's an individual choice, but uh, in the lodge, we don't. Okay. We, um, because it's based on a Christian organization, we have a copy of the Bible, we have prayers, and we have lessons taken from the Bible uh, in each of our three degrees. Initially, in, uh, Freemasonry was a Christian organization, but now we're a syncretic organization. So if, for example, um, a Muslim was to join um, <coughs> our, our lodge, we would have a copy of the Quran on the on the altar for him. Uh, we've had when a Chinese friend of mine, who actually I introduced to him, uh, he had a copy of the I Ching on the on the altar uh, when he was initiated. <laughs> okay. Um, what advice uh, would you give to someone wanting to pursue? Uh... A, a career or a path similar to yours. I know your path has been very varied, um, <laughs> but uh, do you have any so advice first, in, that, yes, in firstly, that regard? Yeah, firstly, I would recommend that they read something. Uh, you don't have to know anything about Freemasonry to become a Freemason. We teach you, that's the whole idea, but we want people who, who are, um, moral people and people are interested in contributing or supporting societies what we do we we spend a lot of time supporting charities giving money uh, and our time 
you know, like in Tokyo, we, we feed the poor and hungry. We, uh, we go out at night with something called the Rice Patrol and give out food and things like this. Um, we also support orphanage, orphan, orphanage, yes, orphanage. Uh, we, we have um, parties and events for orphans and things like that. Orphanages, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but every, every country, every lodge is different. That's what's interesting, you know. Uh, they make their own decisions how to collect the money and how to spend it. So that's um, so I would read about it. Um, of course, I would like people to read my book <laughs> this um, because it talks about the early days and how Freemasonry began, um, the beginning of Freemasonry. Uh, in any of the books in my spiritual Freemasonry series would be a good start. I mean, probably the best place to start is with the initiation by light because that's where you start but anyway um so reading's good and um but just to go with an open mind and how you join a lodge well if you if you know a freemason you should ask him because we have a rule that we're not allowed to ask people to join uh, we don't do proselytization um, people have to join of what we say of their own free will and accord and we don't want to pressure people to join. So if you want to join and you don't know a Freemason, the best way is to look it up in the telephone book, look up the Grand Lodge. So if you live in uh, British Columbia, you could look up Grand Lodge of British Columbia or Grand Lodge of Alaska and ask them, I'd like to join a lodge, what should I do? And they will introduce you to someone. It's as easy as that. Okay. And the other thing is, is I, I was wondering about that, which is close to where you live. And the other thing is you can change lodges once you've joined a lodge. If you know, you can change and join another lodge or whatever you want. And there's so many other things you can do. We have Masonic clubs. Um, we have clubs. We have uh, clubs for people who drive motorbikes called the, uh, the Widow's Sons. We have bowling clubs, we have golfing clubs, we have lots of organizations. So it's not just morality. It's a fraternity and we enjoy having good fun. Okay. Uh, I get, are, are women allowed to join? Yes, we have. Um, so I, I think the reason for this is the same as goes back to Taoism. Taoism originally was part of the court ritual. It was for the um, emperor and before the emperor there were kings in China. Uh, the first emperor was uh, started I think in 200 BC, 220 BC. So before that it was kings, kingdoms. And uh, so in the court there were only men and this was Taoism was the court religion. And so because of that reason only men were allowed in to study Taoism in the early days. Then um, I think sometime around the 1950s, uh, Taoism in Taiwan became uh, open to women. And so now if you go to a Taoist lodge, oh, it's not called a Taoist temple, sorry. Uh, the women sit on the left-hand side and the men sit on the right-hand side. Um, everyone wears black and white. And it's similar in Freemasonry, we wear dark clothes and white gloves. And so in, in 
Taoism, it is now both men and female. However, in Freemasonry, it is still a, mainly a men-only organization. However, uh, since the 1900s, women have set up their own organization. So we have women Freemasons. Uh, we also have um, the Order of the Eastern Star and Job's Daughters. And, and for the younger um, girls, who high school girls, who've got the Rainbow Girls, and so they have their own organizations. We do meet for banquets and parties, but we don't meet in lodge together. If you were giving advice uh, to a doomer, uh, to getting back on the path to a bloomer uh, in life, business, and relationships, uh, what would you tell them? About relationships. You're well, in a darker spot right now. Where would you? Uh, if you were in, oh, okay. If well, in, in life, business, spot. or relationship, just right. Okay. Well, um, yeah. If you're in a, if I, you're in a bad head, bad headspace. Right. Yes. Understood. Um, I also run uh, uh, a nonprofit called Life Management for people who are feeling suicidal, and so um, I talk to people, and I. I think um, drugs will, if you're feeling depressed, drugs will not help you. Uh, it's just a short term. The only thing that's going to help you is other people sharing your story, sharing your pain. And so if you're in a dark place, you have to reach out and ask somebody. Um, you, alcohol and drugs are not the answer. Mm. It's a short term. I'm coming from the pharmaceutical industry. I shouldn't be saying this, but uh, drugs are, are only help to alleviate the symptoms, but they don't get down to the core problem of why you're depressed in the first place. And I've met a lot of suicidal people. So I know the best way is to, um, I, what I do is I just take them for a cup of coffee. And if I have to hold their hand and talk to them, that's what I do listen to them and listening is so important um, people have something inside them that need to get it out um, however there is another level which is more of a spiritual level where they may be um, uh, taken over by negative energy and that's where they need uh, a more of a professional approach where they would probably have to see a priest or somebody who understands these things because um I believe we live in a very spiritual world. You know, if, if we can leave our bodies and, and roam the universe, well, anything can be possible. And so negative energy. So it's uh, the church doesn't talk about demons any longer. If you talk about devils and possession and things like that, uh, they say, oh, yeah, we're in the modern church. We don't talk about that, uh, which is a big, big mistake. Um, so uh, the Vatican um, has increased the, they used to have only two exorcists in New York, and I think they increased it to 12 because of the, the demand for exorcisms in, um, in New York. So depression can lead to greater problems. And so um, first you need to talk to people and if they seem to be really disturbed, and, and having a hard time, then perhaps uh, find a priest or somebody who understands these things and get them to help. 
but it's about people. That's the bottom line. It's uh, coming back to the out of body. Ex yep. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, absolutely. It's about people. Um, coming back to the um, the out of body experience. Have you ever had your own out of body experience? Yes, uh, twelve times, and. Uh, um, I write them down when I have them because well, 12 times. Yes. Yeah. And they have um, only two have been intentional. The others have been spontaneous. So I, I have asthma. And one of the strange things about uh, asthma is that you often get nasal polyps, which is a kind of growth inside the nose. Uh, the doctors don't know the relationship, but I get it quite a lot so I had to have um, surgery twice and uh, when they they operate on your nose it's not a local anesthetic it's a, a whole body total anesthetic and at that time on two times I've had out-of-body experiences I, I sat up and saw the, <laughs> the doctors operating on me which was a, a surprise um, yes and so uh, this out-of-body experience is very exciting. It, uh, it's a leap into the unknown because um, there's no way to, there's no coaching, there's no one who can make a shortcut, or if you do this, it, it's easier. It's not, I, I don't want to say it's not easy, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge, but it is very, very exciting very exciting and it's very safe you, nothing can happen to you um it feels like magic it's it feels like you you're joining the angels or something but in fact the angels are on a different different um uh dimension to us so you don't actually meet angels but uh, and if anyone wants to read about this whole thing about spiritual world i would recommend the book um uh, 30 Years Among the Dead by Carl Wickland. Um, it uh, was written uh, sometime in the Victorian era, so the English is a little bit difficult sometimes, but um, it's about uh, um, a, a, a psychiatrist, Dr. Wickland, and his wife, who's a medium, and they were um, healing sick people by exercising them themselves. And they would talk to the spirits. It's really, really interesting. And it's like 200, oh, sorry, 200 yen. It's about $2 as an ebook. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I wrote it down. Um, and then my second to last follow up question is uh, how, how can you be of service to your community and the world? Um, I think well, you've already answered yeah. this one, but yeah, I, one of the things um, that that's one of the your fresh things take on it is, is um, as an individual, it's difficult to do something, uh, something big, you know, like helping uh, autistic children or um, like in, in the Freemasons in uh, Texas and Arizona, they have uh, free hospital service for children with burns or autistic children. Um, uh, also with children with, with bone problems and they don't charge the children. The children get free you know, care. They can do that because they amass all their, their um, uh, 
facilities, the money, the energy of the members, and they amass it and then they put it into one big project. So as an individual, we may not be able to do much, but as a group like Freemasons, we can do a lot of good and we do do a lot of good. So I, I, I that's another reason for recommending joining Freemasonry. That's, and I don't know if you- the other thing here, it I, says you're a biomagnet therapist. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'm a biomagnet what, therapist. What is bio? What is biomagnet therapy? Yeah, this is very, very interesting. Um, is, that so a, I, is that an energy? Yeah. So I, I've uh, suffered with asthma for twenty-five years, and I've keep on looking for an alternative uh, therapy to um, either heal myself or at least relieve the symptoms. So some of the symptoms, of course, difficulty breathing, but coughing, phlegm, uh, difficulty walking because you can't breathe deeply, and um, uh, sometimes also going into kind of shock and having to go to hospital. So um, through my research, I came across biomagnetism. And what it is basically, it is similar to acupuncture, but instead of using needles, uh, we use small magnets. Uh, they are uh, neodymium, which is a rare earth magnet. Um, rare earth actually is a misnomer because rare earth isn't rare at all. Um, so the neodymium magnets are actually very cheap. You can, for like $5, you can get 50 of them. Um, basically how it's done is the acupuncture they use meridians and you're able to release energy by hitting uh, acupuncture points. But with biomagnetism, we use magnets in a pair. We use a positive and a negative, same magnet, but upside down. And the, the magnet uh, energy flows between the two. And it's able to change the pH in that part of the body that you're working on. And um, I've been for the last, I studied this, uh, I think in 2017, and I've been, uh, not just myself, I've noticed real uh, important changes in my health, but um, I've also been able to reduce any uh, medicines I take for asthma and I uh, get better breathing. It's just totally better. But um, I also uh, started, treating people who have Parkinson's disease. So when I got the qualifications of a biomagnet therapist, uh, you can find it online. Um, I was thinking, well, how am I going to use it? And so um, I can't, can't go around people who've got serious diseases and say, well, let me try with these magnets because it's not really ethical. So I thought about people who have rare diseases and um, it's not well known, but there are over 200 diseases for which there is no therapy at all, no medicine at all. So these patients, they either get uh, painkillers or they get anti-inflammatories like corticosteroids or something like that. And these people are basically, their quality of life is zilch. So I decided to uh, 
focus on this area. One of the biggest um, uh, rare disease is Parkinson's disease. And I've had some really good results. Uh, I did a clinical trial uh, together with a friend who is uh, head of new, uh, neuroscience. My background is, is neuroscience, so I know something about this. And I have a lot of friends in the area, in the, in the specialty. So together we did a clinical trial at his university. And out of five patients who had terminal Parkinson's, which meant they were so uh, restricted, they couldn't uh, move their limbs, they couldn't open their hands to hold a fork, they couldn't feed themselves, they were in pain all the time. Of those five patients, four of them returned home uh, under their own volition. They were able to um, move a wheelchair. The doctor was so surprised. I think I was surprised too, you know, <laughs> but, um, and we didn't change anything. We kept the same medication and it took about uh, 12 sessions, uh, one session a week, so 12 weeks. And the patient sat up in bed, moved to a wheelchair and she, we, she wheeled, wheeled herself out of the hospital. Uh, that was really exciting. So um, that's what I've been doing for the last three, three four years now. <clears throat> oh, okay. Um, and where can our listeners uh, connect with you online? Great. So um, uh, my private, your... my personal website is chris-earnshaw.com. Uh, on um i have uh twitter which is author earnshaw um i've got podcasts on i think if you put spiritual freemasonry uh in inverted commas in in google i think i take the the, the top 10 spaces you will be able to find me somewhere chris earnshaw there's another famous chris earnshaw who is head okay. of British I'll, Telecom, yeah, but uh, that's not me. Oh, okay. <laughs> not to be confused, eh? Uh, uh, and then that last and finally, I always ask this question just for fun. Yeah. Uh, what is your zombie plan, Chris? Do you have a zombie plan? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to join the preppers, I think. <laughs> what I what is pay, it? pay to join the preppers. <laughs> Um, All right. I think they got us supplies of baked beans and things we can just yeah. about survive. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, thanks for having or thanks for coming on the show, Chris. I really appreciated your insight. Uh, I've learned a lot in the last hour or so. Um, so those of us out there uh in the world uh now you are just as much more educated uh on freemasonry and the connection to taoism that i never knew was there um thanks for stopping by everybody if you enjoyed this conversation with christopher earnshaw today uh please be sure to check out the rest of his books on spiritual free masonry on amazon um specifically uh initiation by light um and his youtube channel spiritual freemasonry 
Uh, here at the Doomer Bloomer podcast, we're always looking for interesting guests, uh, such as Chris. Uh, if you would like to reach us directly, uh, we are on all social medias at the Doomer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, if you would like a little bit of extra help uh, from me directly, uh, book my time. Uh, we have a coaching program available, uh, the 10 Pillars Framework to Success, Life, and Business, and Relationships. We have a Patreon page. Uh, you can get some swag from our Teespring store uh, or check out our GoFundMe page. Um, if you are listening out there and you just want to rebroadcast this or reshare or retweet, uh, the hashtag this week is uh, free masonry. Have yourself a great and prosperous day.